Five years ago today, a group of fired-up Seton Hall students made signs for a basketball game against Rutgers. That was the first time they'd ever done so. And they didn't look back since then. For four years, they were known as the Sign Mafia and were a presence in the front row of the Bluebeard Army at every Seton Hall home game. And five years after their debut, they reunite now. Welcome inside the Igloo. It's the five-year Sign Mafia reunion special. So happy to finally get this underway. And I got my big three. Unfortunately, Andrew Smedberg, one of our founding members, couldn't join us today. But I got the big three. We all graduated together. Tom Golombeski, Dan Letso. Guys, it is so good to all be together again. It's great to be here, Tim. Yeah, definitely great to be here, Tim. Thanks for having us on. Yeah, nope. I mean, honestly, when I was looking at the calendar and how I was, you know, planning around the podcast for uploading dates, I mean, this absolutely had to be a must. Five years ago today, it was the first Garden State Harbor Classic. And, um, I, Dan, I know you were there, Tom. You came a little bit later. But, Dan, what were your memories from that very first Garden State Harbor Classic? I mean, it was just a great first rivalry game to experience, you know, like the whole Seton Hall Rutgers thing going back. And it was just a great experience, a lot of fun. It was just, you know, all around just fun to be there. And it felt good to kick Rutgers' ass, too. (laughs) Oh, yeah, that's always good. Yeah, and also, I think the biggest thing, you know, looking back on it now, that was the first glimpse that we all had of what Isaiah Whitehead could be. Like, I mean, granted, he wasn't as great the rest of the year, but that he essentially did that, what he did against Rutgers that day, and basically did that the entirety of the 2015-16 season. And, you know, look what he was able to do afterwards and playing in the NBA. I, so, I, I mean, yeah. uh, go ahead, guys. Sorry. I was going to say, I agree with what you were saying on the, it was his coming out party. It's unfortunate that his career didn't take off in the route that many were hoping, especially when the Brooklyn Nets rolled out all the red carpets for him, have him on Coney Island being, oh, look, here's our hometown kid. Here's the prime and the face of the franchise. I mean, you know, yeah, he's bounced around a little bit over in Europe, but he seems to be balling out for Anastasia in Kazakhstan. Dan, got anything to add to that? No, I have to agree with what both of you guys said. But, uh, you know, with him getting hurt that year, you know, it did put a little bit of a damper on it. But like you said, that 2015-16 season, he really brought it back together. And you you know what happened in March that year. So Yeah, and you know what? Let's not talk about 2014-15. That is something we don't talk about around here. I mean, that was just – that was bad. I mean, you can't – even as a Seton Hall fan, you just – you can't shy away from it. But 2015-16 was like uh, – and, Tom, uh, before we get to that, I got to talk about how I brought you onto the ship. You came in as a transfer from Nichols College out in Massachusetts, and it was – I believe it was DePaul. It was a Thursday night game, waiting outside the bus. We're, like, making small talk, and, you know, we're, we're sitting near each other. You know, you're holding up a couple of my signs, and I think it's fair to say the rest is history. Oh, yeah, absolutely, especially when we had uh, the Fox Fox Sports crew come over with their camera. I forget which sign it was that we had. I remember one of them was the DePaul's nice, 
Paul's not. I think that Can't might have been the one they showed on, on TV. Yeah, that was. And I'm pretty sure, I think I tweeted, I, I think I tweeted out one of those signs. It might have been mine. I, I was, I, I did something stupid. I just wrote, couldn't think of anything. And Fox Sports 1 retweeted. I was like, okay, like we're, we're making our mark. But like, that was a learning curve year for us. Sophomore year, that's when we started getting good and being a constant presence at games. And I, and that, 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 that year, that the, our big game, I mean, Rutgers was the big game, and that was kind of weak considering, you know, Rutgers sucked back then. But the big game, that 2015-16 campaign out of conference, even though it wasn't against a ranked Wichita State team, it was still a huge game considering who was on the team at the time, who they were as a program back then. And the signs were great. The game was great. Um, so, uh, so. Try to take me back. I mean, I know I got my opinions on my memories of that game. But what were yours? Uh, Tom, I'll start with you. Uh, honestly, the atmosphere, the rock, electric. One of the things that our freshman year we never saw. I remember how you, me, Dan, Andrew, standing there, making small talk, you know, yelling, hooting and hollering, making fun of you know, the other teams, cheering on our uh, Latvian prince that we had at the time, Harold Carlos. Harold, go. And then, you know, that was when we also, you know, really got to meet some of the other freshmen that came in the year after. I think my favorite is the uh, Zach Brown, Where's Your Band? And then I forget who we named in the Lives in a Van Down by the River. It might have been Fred Van Vliet. Van Vliet. Uh-huh. And, oh, oh, my, oh, you know what, I, I don't know if you remember this, but waiting in line to get in before the game, and we were showing off a couple of our signs, and a Wichita State fan thought the Farmers Only is the official dating site of Wichita State. That was hilarious. Oh, that was that was electric. I mean, like you said, that that's really where we started to show the creativity. I mean, I think we definitely upped our game as the years went on, but that naturally comes with the maturing of age. I, t- I, I couldn't agree more, and I think the biggest thing, like, you had us, and then that year, I mean, there were a lot of there were a lot of things that happened. You had the Veersing fan club, which I loved that to death, considering I was sweet mates with him, and I could not have been a bigger fan of him. We were, we were all fans of him. Like, he was, he, was our, he was like our guy, our cult hero. And then you had a couple guys who enjoy dressing as crustaceans. Let's put it that way. <laughs> but it was a nice dynamic, even with a couple of the neg- negatives surrounding them in particular. It was still a nice dynamic, and our student section all around was so was so strong. Uh, so, uh, Dan, I'll put this to you. I mean, that was your uh, that was your second season full season as a ticket holder as well. So uh, what were your biggest memories, uh, at least from the home schedule of 2015-16? I know the last week of home games in particular really stood out to me. I mean, yeah, that was that was the stretch where we beat both uh, X and Villanova, correct? Providence. Providence, that's right. I mean, yeah, I think, you know, going from freshman year and transitioning to sophomore year, you could really – see how the program was starting to grow in the right direction. You could see, you know, the fan base kind of realizing that as well. Like the games were getting more electric each game. We were getting more and more people there and we were starting to get louder. And like with you running 
with you running the whole thing, you know, you were able to get a whole bunch of people involved. And as the years went on, you know, it just, it kept getting better and more people were coming out. And like, uh, just a lot of, a lot of that year was like an emotional roller coaster. Like we had our ups and downs, you know, but that happens with every year. Um, yeah, but I, I saw this tweet and I don't know if you guys agreed with it and it's somewhat controversial. Uh, Sakatology. I mean, I know he's satirical a lot of the time, but he was, I think it was pretty serious in this moment where he said something along the lines of, if it wasn't for Derek Gordon calling a team meeting after we had gotten blown out by Creighton at home and we bounced back after that, who knows if Willer still has that Seton Hall job now. I agree with what uh, Scientology said. You have to think our freshman year when they had that whole meltdown with Mobley and everything when the locker room just went. And you could see the tension that was there every game. You could cut the tension with a knife. And then you have somebody like Derek who was at Texas and then went to UMass and started UMass, comes in to that great veteran leadership, something that was desperately needed and ultimately plays a big role in Seton Hall going into Manhattan and dominating in the Big East Storm. I mean, you can say, oh, look at the game. They weren't dominating. They win a championship that's dominating in my eyes. And, I mean, Especially it, when mm-hmm. you a team like Villanova down in the championship. Yeah, so, I mean, let's get right to let's get right to that. I mean, th- that Big East tournament, we were all lucky enough to win the lottery and uh, get tickets for the tournament in the student section, you know, basically almost on the floor of Madison Square Garden and that is just something unlike any else, at least in my opinion. And then, honestly, and we were lucky enough because school was still in sex- session at the time. Like, it wasn't over spring break like it was freshman, junior, and senior year. So not only do you have all of our student contingent that had won the lottery, but all of these other students were also coming to the games, you know, buying tickets and, you know, sitting in the nosebleeds of the world's most famous arena. And honestly, all three nights, I mean – it was such an emotional roller coaster, but um, like honestly, those were honestly the most memorable three nights of my four years of college. I mean, it's I went, it's right up there. I mean, three nights in a row of just all this action, all this drama was just intense. So um, yeah, let's just talk about just a few. I mean, just the games, and then also. The other stuff that we did, you know, I think the biggest thing was, um, oh man, going to Hooters before the Creighton game. And that was bad. That was really bad. Tom, I know you're with me on there. Uh, so yeah, yeah, let's talk about that a little bit. Tom, go ahead. Besides the fact that, you know, here's someone that advertises their chicken wings being, you know, some of the best. It was literally the worst meal I ever had. And our server was, not one of the greatest, but I'm not going to run her on that because maybe she was having an off day. Everybody has one of those. But you know what? Maybe it's one of those things, you know, that bad meal started the snowball effect and, you know, we end up beating Creighton. And then we go to Applebee's the next day. We have more more food, more cheap food, win that, and then mm-hmm. we go to Sabaro and get pizza and end up winning the championship. And then, you know, unfortunately, we know how the draw for the tournament happened that year. But it's still one of those memories that we'll always have. That fact that we stood there, watched us win the first title since what it was what ninety three was the last ninety three yep. title. Yeah, so you know that's one of those things that 
in the words of Sam Rosen, will last a lifetime. Uh, yeah, so, uh, I mean, we knew what we were getting into. And, like, our road to the title, it couldn't have been better. You know, beating a Creighton team that had just wiped the floor with us in Newark in early January. We we had beaten them in Omaha, and then we went a close game in the quarterfinal. And then we beat number five Xavier again. And then the championship game, you couldn't have a better setup with, with Villanova. We were one point away from beating them in Newark in January. And we were talking about this in Sabaro that day. And like <laughs> for a pregame meal for a championship, it, it was kind it was it was weak, but we knew honestly, I think we all knew that we had a good feeling that we were gonna if we come this far thing so um yeah dan i'll go with you you were in the in, in that pizzeria with us aka michael scott's favorite new york pizza joint but yeah just kind of take me back to you know how all of us were feeling you know like what we talked about and, and like how, like the confidence that we had going into that night i mean i know there was a lot of confidence but like you know it was also a lot of nerves you know you're playing a team like Villanova and you, you saw what happened to us at the, the last game at the Rock and how close we were. So you knew we could already compete with them. It was just a matter of being able to close out the game and get around them. But the confidence was there. The buzz around our team was there. And just the atmosphere in the garden that night was something else. And like the, the one thing I take away from that tournament is when Isaiah White had made that drive at the end. And I think it was Jenkins step, stepped up to take the charge. But they called it a block, and it just seemed like the ball sat on that rim for a good 10 minutes before it fell. And then just when it fell, it was just, you know, pure elation. And, and when that final buzzer went off, too, I mean, that just heightened it even more. And honestly, like, I don't cry over sports a lot. I'm pretty sure you guys don't either. But I legitimately cried. I wanted to celebrate with literally – I mean, obviously you guys, but literally anyone and everyone who I saw in pirate blue and white. Like, I was hugging – every single person I possibly could have. And, oh, man, that was arguably best moment, best moment of my life up to that point. What about you guys? One of the funniest moments I remember is after we beat Noah, we're outside, you know, after high five practically everybody, wait until they cut down the nets, team runs back in. As the band's playing uh, onwards to Tony, you jump up my shoulders and you're just throwing your fist up in the air like we won the Super Bowl or something all I'm thinking is, don't drop Tim. Don't drop Tim. Don't drop Tim. This will hurt if he falls. And then we all know, you know, what happens down in Penn Station while waiting for our train to take us back to South Orange with uh, then-President Esteban and everybody. We're all singing the fight song and everything. It was one of those moments that, you know, changed your memory of basketball at Seton Hall. And I think it definitely changed, you know, the next few years when we get to experience the NCAA tournament. But like that year, we didn't expect the Big East championship. We didn't know what to expect from this team because we had that utter collapse. Our freshmen were like, is this what our four years are going to be? I knew we were too good to let that happen over and over again. I, I mean, yeah, it was obviously a surprise. I didn't think we were going to, I mean, I knew we would like bounce back from it and like, be good and be a tournament team. Did I expect us to win the Big East tournament? No way. And that's what made that's what made it even more joyous. And 
like we had every right to celebrate and enjoy it as much as we did. I mean, I was out, I was out partying till like 4 a.m. Like I didn't care. Like that was the best night of my life, honestly. And I mean, we knew it was going to be a good night coming back on the train to South Orange and hearing people chanting kegs on the green. Uh, but yeah, so honestly, I mean, we haven't talked about the signs much. I mean, after all, we were the sign mafia. That was our thing. And I, I'm pretty sure I made during our four years close to 300 of them between freshman and senior year. Um, so I'll put it to you guys. And Dan, I'll start with you. Uh, I know you didn't really like, you know, assimilate into our, fr- uh, our fraternity at the time. Like I call, I still jokingly call it Sigma Mu, best fraternity on, on Seton Hall's campus. It's a, and it's a limited community, but um, what were some of your all time uh, favorite signs that we ever made? And, you know, all time favorite, you know, all time favorite ways that we just antagonize certain players and any players that really stood out to you that we like to pick on. I mean, I feel like you always tend to, you know, heckle the best players on the other team. So, for me, the ones that really stick out were, you know, J.P. Makura. I mean, I feel like he was pretty much the grace and of the Big East. Like, he was just a player that everyone loved to hate. And, you know, Trayvon Blewett was just, you know, a stud for Xavier, so it was always fun to try and get under his skin, you know, get him off his game. And then Miles Davis, R.T.D. Acno, and I Josh Hart. Josh Hart. I think another one was uh, while he was still here before he uh, moved on, Tyreek Owens was fun to – go after a little bit. Oh, man. Ali uh, Begovic, too. <laughs> I think some of the signs that stick out to me, but, I mean, I feel one that might not stick out to a lot of other people, but, like, it was funny for me because I had a couple friends that attended SEC schools, and we had the one sign for the NCAA tournament game against Arkansas. We had the one sign that said, nobody from the SEC can read this. And I instantly had a couple friends, like, reach out to me and ask me, like, wow, so that's really what you think of us. Because they saw it on our Instagrams, and I think yeah, and it made it on Reddit too. Did it really? Yeah, like I, I mean, I saw like a lot of people were talking about it on Reddit. I'm just like, whoa! I think we're making it. <laughs> and I think the other one that sticks out to me is like maybe not a, a popular one, but uh, the the SpongeBob reference. Every every Villanova is lemons. I think that one was one of my favorites too. That's an underrated one. I will give you that. Tom, what about you? Uh, I think one of my favorites is the uh, Ben Bentle takes bubble baths. Uh, I like <laughs> I like the Tyler Lewis still eats off kids menu. I think what makes that one even funnier is the fact that he personally asked for the sign after the game. Uh, I thought the the fact that we made the sign for the Central Connecticut State game, the not even Trump can make Central Connecticut State great again, right after the election with all the, you know, BS that, you know, was brought up through that whole campaign. Just having something you could laugh at was funny. One of those things that wasn't a sign that I thought was funny is I think it was the Central Connecticut State game that we were just so bored because of the score. And we started the, you're not going to make it because you suck to we're not going to take it by Twisted Sister. Mm -hmm. Or my, you know, ever so lovely rubbing of my stomach during free throws. Oh my god! Like any time the cameras were on us, we were we just honestly we looked like idiots. I I will be the first to admit that. And you know what? I wouldn't want it any other way because that just makes it that much more memorable. And that's like the kind of like face that kind of just sticks out. Is like like this is the face 
of the Seton Hall student fan base. And I'm like, you know what? Okay, I, I'll, t- I'll take it, man. Like, if it's – if I'm so – if we're – and our big thing was we need to represent our fan base with the utmost class respect. And, like, even though we may have, like, you know, bordered some, some lines a couple times here and there, we still had that basis of, you know, we want to treat our opponents with respect and we had a stronger emphasis on – cheering on our own guys because heckling is so commonplace that the other teams are just used to it. So why not try to go in a different direction, try to be a little more positive. And uh, speaking of chance, by the way, and thank you, Tom, for bringing that up. The chance that like we, people forget that we weren't just these guys who just made signs and sat in the front row. We were leading chance. We were making our own chance as well. You mentioned that you're not going to make a chant on free throws, but we did a lot of other things. I know that it wasn't our thing originally, but the fake shot clock was pure genius. And when it worked, it was so good. Um, and then on top of that was uh, for our good old pal, Desi Rodriguez, uh, to the tune of a two live crew song called We Want Some you know, P-U-S-S-Y, instead we flipped that around and it chanted, uh, the chant was, hey, we want some Des, hey. And the cheerleaders and the Sapphires ate that up. Um, and then another thing that I loved doing our senior year was bringing back the whole one side seat in the other side hall and, you know, going back and forth, you know, like bring it back to the 90s because so many alumni we're clamoring for that for the longest time. And like senior year, honestly, that was when everything came together. Everybody was in sync. It was lit every game almost, except for like a couple games right, right before Christmas. But other than that, our senior year in terms of a crowd, you could not have asked for anything better. So uh, Dan, I'll start with you. I mean, do you agree with that? Oh yeah. A hundred percent, Tim. Like, I was actually going to bring that up before you did, so I'm glad you did. That was definitely one of my favorite chants. It definitely got the whole student section into it because you got both halves going. And uh, I think the one we got to talk about, too, is like the, the one you guys started before I got there, the squat, pray, leap for Angel Delgado. That was yes! one of my memories. Oh, man. Oh, so, okay, we got to tell this story. Smedge is the one behind that, right, Tom? Yeah, Andrew, Andrew started it when – we were just continuing our typical atrociousness from the line. And I believe it was a stretch where Angel was like two for 12 in the game. He's like, all right, first we got to squat, pray, leap, ah, touchdown. In reference, of course, to the whole Drake and Josh episode where they go parachuting and the parachute instructor tells them everything they have to do and they end up going splat. Which is what ended up to us going S P L A T. Another one of those that I really enjoyed, I'm not trying to cut Dan off or anything, was when we did the CPR, fake CPR on Monster Dongs or just a play that was super awesome. Oh yeah, no, I mean those were always tremendous. And 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 you mentioned the squat prey leap. I mean, it was so it it was dumb, obviously, but like the fact that it it started working and like, you know, I hate people that are like, you know, it's not actually affecting him. Right. But like when you're, when you get superstitious, like we were, 
you know, when something works, you stick to it until it doesn't. And as years went on, he got better at free throw shooting. And in a way, like we attributed that to SPLAT. Oh, and now we got to talk about this. Um, We kind of touched on our NCAA tournament trip to Greenville in 2017. Waffle House being a 12-hour drive from South Orange to Greenville. And the overall, I mean, the atmosphere was great just going there and being part of our crowd against Arkansas. But I just the biggest memory for me was just the way, I mean, I know we lost the losing the game sucked, but it was the way we lost it. And do you guys still believe that we got screwed at the end of the game? Oh yeah, hundred percent. Like it was, it was a big thing on Twitter, and I say, I say till this day that this is probably gonna be like the one time Seton Hall trends on Twitter because just the whole basketball community was up in arms about that phantom flagrant call at the end of that game. I, I, I mean, I, go ahead. I agree with the. Did we get, you know, screwed over a little bit? But at the same time, we had a lead and we had that long stretch where it went scoreless. You can't win a game when you're not scoring. It was, it's a thing that we've seen far too often happen with Seton Hall. You know, as much as I, you know, loved watching the team for the four years that we were there, what was one thing that we always kept saying? We'd be hot as anything and then we'd go, okay, so five minutes stretch we're not gonna score eight minutes 12 minutes it's one of those things that you know they couldn't close out a big game it doesn't help when you get phantom calls by officials and you're just going i i don't know what trouble to this day i still don't know where they got the flagrant from but at the same time you have to hold the team and the coaching you know the coaching staff not making adjustments accountable i mean i have to agree with you there i mean but the difference I see was we were down by one point when that foul happened. And if it wasn't been, it had been ruled a flagrant foul, let's just say he makes the two, he makes the two free throws. We still get the ball back. If it's a common foul, and we're only down by three points. That's still a one possession game, but with that flagrant, they get the two shots and they get the ball back, which means you got to foul again. And that, 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 that dug us that hole that we couldn't, get out of and the refs were the ones that had the shovel in that moment, at least in my opinion, but thank God, you know, we bounced back 2018. Like we knew us as us being seniors, there was no way we couldn't go to the tournament. Even if it was out in the middle of nowhere in Wichita, Kansas, like there was no way. And honestly, like I was debating about going, especially after, just losing in heartbreaking fashion to Butler in the Big East tournament the week before. But honestly, I think you'll agree with this. I couldn't have been more happy and I could have made a better decision going out to Wichita with you guys. And then our good, a good friend of mine and another Seton Hall alum, Pat Hines driving down from Iowa state, uh, picking us up in Kansas city and us for uh, having the weekend out in Wichita. I, I loved Wichita. I still love Wichita. I'm planning on going back there at some point, especially with the fact that the Miami Marlins just moved their AAA team out there. One thing that I think is funny is I mentioned that you were having second thoughts about it. I don't know, Dan and I the whole time was like, dude, this is our last chance to go to this. Let's just do it. And then, you know, we had the super early wake up 
when my sister drove us to the air to Philly's airport, sitting in the airport, us literally talking the night before. Okay, this is our flight that we're getting on. You booking the flight after us. Dan and I sitting, <laughs> Dan and I sitting in five guys going, What if his flight gets delayed and he misses this flight? What if this happens? And then you know, you end up getting it earlier. It's like, oh I'm here. And I'm like, oh, okay, good. And and then, and then the funny, like the crazy thing about everything was, I mean, Greenville was kind of nuts because we had to stop a bunch of times. We stopped at Waffle House for breakfast in the morning, and then like we got to Greenville maybe like with about two and a half hours before tip off. So we were lucky enough to go to the Pirate Blue reception there um, near the arena beforehand. But this was completely different. Like we got into Kansas City. Uh, Pat, we had a three-hour drive with Pat just to get to Wichita. And we got to our hotel a half an hour and checked in a half hour before tip-off. And we got to the arena 15 minutes before tip-off from Uber. And <laughs> thank God we got there in time. And thank God we were able to, you know, be like a row or two behind our bench and witness our first NCAA tournament win uh, since 2004. So how special was that uh, in your opinion, guys? I guess I'll, I'll take this one first, you know. It was it was a it was definitely a special experience, you know, especially with, you know, how the guys on the team were able to help us out by getting us tickets, and for me specifically, Kevin Willard, you know, helping me out and getting my ticket. So just, it was nice to see that the guys appreciated our support and wanted us to be there. And for just, one more well, ride, baby. Go ahead. No, no, no. For one more ride, I, I just, I, I mean, they knew we were seniors, so they, I feel like they wanted us there just for our last ride. But uh, yeah, continue going with your point. And, yeah, just being able to witness, you know, our first tournament win in however many years, you know, it was just truly special to do it our senior year. And, like, even though we ended up losing to Kansas, just being able to see us play Kansas in Kansas was just, like, an out-of-body experience. Like, the way that the fans up out there treat, treat their basketball team, it was just – it was just – it was really special. Tom, I'll go to you. Uh, I have to agree with a lot of what – uh, Dan said, especially with me watching the Kansas game in Kansas. Whenever I talk about that game, the first thing I say is that you do not understand how chilling that Rock Hawk Jayhawk chant is until you are standing in an arena that was what, 14,000 fans, maybe 14 of us, 15 of us were Seton Hall fans. Everybody else around you is Kansas, and all you hear is that. Rock chalk, Jayhawk chant literally sounds like they're they're trying to summon a demon from you know like mm-hmm. the earliest days of Kansas basketball. Uh, like also, they're summoning Fog Allen. <laughs> I also enjoyed the fact that our Uber ride to Interest Bank Arena in downtown Wichita, the guy took a picture with us because we were the only Seton Hall fans he'd ever seen. But you know. That, I- and also, after that Kansas game is really what made me appreciate everything that had happened through our four years. It was one of those after the final horn sounded because we knew it was over, and you know, just a heartbreaking fashion. I mean, T, uh, it was TBS, I believe, showed our game. There's that screen grab yeah. of Dan and I both looking like we're at the point of just going to ball our eyes out with Dan in Surrender Cobra, and we have just like. I don't want to cry on TV. And then we 
called, talked to Gary Cohen. You know, we went down and talked to him. He's like, we just want to know that us, the coaching staff, and the players really appreciated everything that you guys did throughout your four years. It was one of those that made me realize that it wasn't just a flash in the pan kind of thing, that these guys actually did appreciate what was going on, that the coaching staff actually appreciated what was going on with fans who loved being, you know, at the ball games, literally bled Pirate Blue through and through for those four years and, you know, as we still do, you know, with the reactions to our heartbreaking loss to Michigan State, our heartbreaking loss to Oregon, and how we got, how we still talk and going, okay, opening that game up at Wintrust in, you know, late December is going to be a tough, tough game, especially if DePaul stays as hot as they are, because we all know what happened last year when DePaul had our number in Wintrust and at the Rock. Right. Yeah, I mean, but to, you know, continue, like, I just remember, like, my biggest, honestly, you, the moment where I started to lose it was when Kadeen checked out. And Kadeen was, like, my guy. And I know him being from Brooklyn and whatnot, just being around him for four years, he would always make fun of, like, my whiteness. And it, I just thought it was funny. And, like, we had, like, that connection. And, um, yeah, just see, when he checked out, that was when I lost it. And, like, I, honestly, that even though we lost, I could not have been more content with everything that happened because we literally left everything on the floor, especially the seniors. Even though Desi and Ish didn't have good games, Angel had the ga- uh, had a had the game of his life to end his college career. I mean, twenty four points and twenty three rebounds against the number three team in the country. Like, what more could you ask for out of him? And like that was a sign for him to that was a sign of things to come for him in the G, he won G League Rookie of the Year after that and then Kadeen played it seemed like he couldn't miss in the second half so when those two when him and him and Dean uh, Angel Kadeen checked out that was when I lost it and I I think like at the final horn like I think all three of us huddled around you know like we were all hugging each other I'm like I'm like this is, nothing's gonna be the same after this like this is it and it was just. Even though it didn't have the fairy tale ending, I mean, it was just poetic. Everything that happened, and um, and honestly, I you can say what you want about you know, like we're only you know we're only there for four years. We were only student fans, and blah 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 blah. But numbers don't lie, and you know, like before this, we we hadn't made the tournament since two thousand six. Now we're on a street. We started this streak. Now it's possibly going to make a fifth straight tournament this year. And something else to keep in mind, we didn't lose a single non-conference home game between Prudential Center and Walsh Gym. 26-0. and 0. And our home record for four years was 49-13 and 13 for four years. Like an, an 84-48 record from after being absolutely pretty mediocre the four years before that. So last things last, guys. I know we talked about a lot over the past, you know, 45 minutes or so. Uh, so I'll put it to both of you guys. Uh, Dan, I'll start with you. Uh, and before I do that, I like to point out, by the way, that, and Tom, I know you love that you're not going to make it, Chan. You will love that to the day you die because you came up with that. And when we did that in Kansas, against Kansas, 
they were two for seven from the free throw line when we were doing that because it was dead quiet when they were shooting free throws. Obviously, it's their home crowd pretty much. So when we were doing it, they were two for seven in the first half. And then Kansas fans in the second half copied us to no avail. But the fact that they were was showing that, like, okay, we're doing something good here. And and imitation is the most sincere form of flattery, at least in my opinion. So uh, just to wrap this up, Dan, overall impact that the sign mafia left on Seton Hall basketball, really just the university almost in general. I mean, yeah, I think we've tried to cover it, you know, throughout the the episode. We said we talked about the numbers. We talked about, you know, the record while we were there. We talked about the alumni showing their support, the players showing their support. And, you know, I, like I said, I'm still a season ticket holder. And, you know, I see, I see what Eddie's doing there now. And he's like trying to keep what the, the legacy we left behind going. And, you know, I hope after he leaves, I hope it keeps going. You know, the program's really going in a good direction. Like you said, this could be our fifth straight tournament after not being there for however many years, you know. So you got to think how truly lucky we were to be able to go to Seton Hall when we did and get to watch the quality of basketball that we got to watch. And I think we've really covered it well that our legacy is strong and that it'll keep going. All right, Tom, I know you were kind of late to the party coming as a transfer in the second semester of freshman year, but um, let's get your take on it. Uh, first thing that I got to say is, you know, it was awesome. You know, my first week or so being at Seton Hall, you know, we had that, we had that Butler game where we lost in overtime. Then I think it was the following week is when we had DePaul. And, you know, like you said, me being a transfer, I knew nobody. You know, there were a couple people that I knew from classes that I had. But, you know, here I am standing waiting for a bus. See you showing your upper New York-style kid wearing shorts and, you know, 25 degrees with blustery winds. This kid's freaking nuts for wearing shorts when it's this cold and windy out in the middle of January. Lo and behold, you know, later on I find out that you're from Utica and, you know, that it snows there from, like, October 1st until probably the 1st of June. Obviously, I'm, you know, being facetious there. But, you know, Trust me, I know. It's, a, it's a brotherhood, you know. And it meant a lot that I just had, you know, somebody just jump and go, yeah, tag along with us, you know. is how I you know, made, a, you know, friendships that are going to last a lifetime. It's like Dan said, you know, we were all season ticket holders our entire time. Last year, unfortunately, I wasn't a season ticket holder, but that's because my job took me to Massachusetts. This year, I wasn't a season – I'm not a season ticket holder, but it's partially because of my job and my schedule. But, you know, should they adjust to working with basketball? I plan on being a season ticket holder forever because I look at it like this. I had a high school guidance counselor who went to Seton Hall. Him and his frat brothers go to games every year. They sit up in the nosebleeds. They go to the tournament. I honestly see that being – you, me, Dan, and Andrew, they were all just going to be standing, sitting, watching basketball, you know, shooting chatter and all that, and just having fun because that was what we did for four years. It bothered me last year that when you guys had the reunion against St. John's, that because of the government shutdown, I couldn't be there. So, you know, that stunk. But this year, I'm super amped for when we play St. John's because it's, you know, reunion part two. And it's my way of, you know, BSing with the boys. And as Dan made the comment you know, earlier in the show, talking about the alumni that donated, I know we all said it, I don't know how many times, but I, and I don't know how many alumni or people who donated to our trip to Wichita 
illustrate. I mean, it was over two thousand dollars. It was over two thousand dollars too. Yeah, but that's why I don't know how many people listen to it or whatnot. But I want to say from the bottom of my heart that that meant so much to me. That here are a bunch of people who either went to see the hall, you know, graduated, knew knew some of us. They threw their money together just to send a bunch of ragtag college kids that they really don't know, other than. These guys stand front and center, scream, hoot, and holler for the blue and white. Let's send them to Wichita so they can watch their team. And you know what? We got the ultimate gift of watching Seton Hall knock off NC State, playing a you know tough game with Kansas, doing as much as we did in Wichita. And it's one of it's those memories are what's going to shape your lifetime. And you know, be like I said at the beginning, being a transfer making the friends that I made through Seton Hall basketball. I never thought that it would be five years later from, you know, the day that we all started hanging out, making signs. Did I think that we'd be reminiscing about it and seeing a legacy carried on? You know, when we left, we all wondered what was going to be the legacy that was left behind. Is it going to be, we were all loud, rambunctious, and, you know, loud and proud for the hall when we were there. And then once we left, is it going to fade away? I'm really happy to see that Eddie Wolf took charge. He grabbed the bull by the horns and continued what we were doing. And he pushed forward. And that student section is loud. I mean, I watched very little of the Michigan State game. But, you know, I watched uh, the Stony Brook. I watched FAMU. When we were at Seton Hall, we had NGIT. I remember, Tim, there was – Maybe five thousand fans of the arena, and you heard us the whole game. That that arena was packed for a low level non con team, and you know it's awesome seeing it. And you know po- the possibility of a fifth year of going to the tournament. In the words of the great college basketball analyst John Rothstein, "We sleep in May," and. And so now, now it's, I'd like to offer, you know, my two cents on this, you know, honestly, I didn't want to be one to just, you know, be able to do these great things. You know, like my goal was to eventually become the president of the Bluebeard Army and lead the way, which I was so lucky and able to do and be the president in my senior year. But forming this brotherhood was what gave me what it really was a brotherhood. And like, I mean, people ask me like, why weren't you in a fraternity? I'm like, I already got my brothers really. And I, I'll tell you who they are. It's like, we go to basketball games together. It's me, Tom, Dan, and Andrew. That's the core four. And that's how, that's how it's going to be for life. Really. I mean, obviously I got a strong group of friends as well, you know, that I had met through freshman year and all that. Uh, you know, that that's like a more of a separate entity. And I do see them quite a bit as well, but my goal wasn't to just, you know, make this great thing and then just let it fall to the ground afterward. I didn't want things to collapse. Honestly, my goal through all of this was to just lay the foundation so that the future can be even brighter. And that's what it is right now. The future is bright with Seton Hall basketball, with Miles Powell leading the way, and then even better recruits now coming in year after year after year. And hopefully it'll continue, you know, for many years to come and even decades. But I think the biggest thing that I learned, you know, through this experience was, you know, 
we really did change the culture because this was a it was they had a losing culture for a long time and it took us it took 10 years for them to just make it back to the NCAA tournament and then once we got to that level of success where we made it back we've kept it there and it's going to i feel like it's going to stay that way for a very long time because we changed the culture and the intensity in the program and wanting to have that level of excellence year after year. Like we don't want to be a flash in the pan. We want to be a constant presence in, in the landscape of college basketball. We don't want to be an afterthought like we had been for years. And we wanted, like we wanted Seton Hall basketball to matter again. And by going to all these games, like I didn't miss a single home game from the middle of my sophomore year until I graduated. And in, when we do come back, you know, you can see that we still lead the way. You know, we're still getting the energy in the crowd. You can see that. I mean, Dan, you can speak to that. When I did come back, when we were together for St. John's last year and, and senior day against Villanova, and chances are it's going to be the exact same way when we all reunite uh, for that game on CBS February 23rd against our rivals across the GW from St. John's. So, we really did change the culture and I feel like we did play such a huge role in turning everything around in South Orange. And I couldn't be more grateful for the four years that I was able to spend as a student at Seton Hall. And also I got to shout out Jerry Carino for giving us the idea and the inspiration to start that GoFundMe page to get us out to Wichita. And if it wasn't for him, we wouldn't have been able to have that trip of a lifetime. So Jerry, I hope you hear this. We're all three of us are so thankful for you and to everyone, Chris McManus as well for getting our story out there, our junior year and also donating to that GoFundMe. So, but even more, I'm even more grateful for just the brotherhood and the bond that the three of us and along with Andrew Smedberg uh, were able to bond. So guys wouldn't have wanted a better five year reunion special with the big three of us uh, couldn't be happier for you guys making the time to come on and just reminisce about the last four or five years now. And it's going to be so awesome uh, reuniting with you guys this February. It's going to, it's going to be as I love to say, it's going to be lit. It's going to be a great time, Tim. I want to thank you for allowing us to climb into your humble abode. That is the igloo and just chill for about an hour or so and shoot the shit about college basketball, the greatest sport out there. Yeah, and the best conference out there, the Big East, baby. Dan, go ahead. Sorry about that. No, you're good. I just wanted, again, I just wanted to reiterate what Tom said. You know, thanks for having us on. It was uh, great to talk about this, and hopefully we can get a win when you and uh, Tom come back to visit. Couldn't be more excited for you guys. Thanks again for your time, and – for you listeners out there, don't go anywhere. I got my weekend preview coming up. So thanks again, Tom, Dan, and I will see you in February at the Rock, baby. Of course. See you, Tim. Uh, see you, bro. All right. Welcome back inside the Igloo. Shout out again to a couple of my brothers for life, Tom Golombeski and Dan Letso, for joining me to help 
commemorate the five-year anniversary of the debut of the Seton Hall Side Mafia. Unfortunately, Andrew Smedberg couldn't join us today for it. He was a founding member along with me and a couple others. And unfortunately, he came down sick with a fever and was unable to join us today. However, because we're all reuniting for the St. John's game in late February at The Rock, we will be all recording together around that time, and we're going to preview the St. John's game and talk about a whole lot more around the Big East and talk about some more memories from our time at Seton Hall. So again, look for that around late February. But again, shout out to Tom and Dan, my brothers for life. Now, let's get moving on to your weekend preview, tying in with a weekend review as well. Action gets started tonight. Providence, Rhode Island, in Kingston, and Providence has had Rhode Island's number this decade. They have won eight of nine meetings against the Rams, and despite Providence's shaky start, they're still favored by a point and a half tonight on the road. The Rams 5-3 and three on the season, and they're actually favored according to the BPI it's about a 58-42 split. And Rhode Island, their last time out, lost a tough one at West Virginia. That was an 86-81 defeat. And if there's anyone to watch on this Rhode Island team, it's Fats Russell. Key contributor on the 2018 tournament team that beat Oklahoma and Trey Young in the first round before succumbing to Duke. He's definitely going to be the guy to watch for. And... The thing with Providence, we learned this last weekend when they were out in Anaheim for the Wooden Legacy. They have a very tough time containing the best player on whoever they're facing. It happened against Long Beach State. It happened against Charleston. And it also happened just even in a winning effort in their game on Sunday against Pepperdine. Is Providence going to win this game? I don't know now. I'm shaky on this. It's about 50-50. I think Providence needed to get that win over Pepperdine. Even though it was ugly, they needed to win that game. They got it done, and now they just got to get their confidence back up. They got to use that game as a booster moving forward because things aren't going to get easier. Because you got Rhode Island again tonight. Got Stony Brook a week after that, and then you close out non-con with Florida in Brooklyn, and then Texas. You got to get some wins, and you got to get them soon. Ideally, you want to go three and one in your final four non-conference games before Big East play starts on New Year's Eve against Georgetown. However, I don't know. I just think Rhode Island is going to win this game. I know Providence has been so good against Rhode Island this decade, winning 8 of 9. I just don't think they're going to have enough because they have been struggling in the second half of games recently. They get off to these good starts, and then they just let lesser teams creep back into it. Providence is more talented than Rhode Island. But 
on the road, they need to take away the home court advantage. That's their first priority. The rest will take care of itself after that. And I think that's the biggest thing. If Providence wants to win this game, subdue the home crowd like they have been able to do in their last few meetings in Kingston and make sure Fats Russell doesn't go off. Again, Fats is averaging 21 points a game coming off that 32-point outing in Morgantown. Got to make sure you contain him, no matter what. And then on Saturday, a huge slate of games, and the headliners on Fox, first Fox College Hoops game of the season, high noon, Hinkle Fieldhouse, Florida at Butler. And Butler is actually, they're favored by five points to win this game. I mean, who would have thought that a month ago when Florida was the number six team in the preseason poll? Big reason why Butler's favored, Kamar Baldwin. He just went off for 31 points just a few nights ago at Ole Miss. It was a huge victory, and that was that nearly accounted for half of his team's points. They scored 67 points. Baldwin had 31 of them and a huge road win. Like That is huge. And that was a huge road win because it's a, three, it's a tough three-game stretch to start December. At Ole Miss, and then obviously Florida, and then at Baylor this coming Tuesday in Waco. This Florida team is obviously really, really, really talented. However, the results just haven't spoke for themselves yet. They're 6-2 and two right now, and they have losses against Florida State at home and at UConn. They did get some momentum back winning the Charleston Classic a couple weeks ago. But this is a legit tough road test now. And Butler is playing really strong basketball. The big thing is, moving forward, I mean, obviously, Kamar Baldwin is going to continue to do his thing. He's been phenomenal as of late. And in that win, along with those 31 points, he was 11 of 16 from the field, which is... Nearly 70% from the field and perfect 5 for 5 from the charity stripe. The only problem is no other Bulldog scored in double figures. You got to get that supplementary scoring. You got to get a Robin to Baldwin's Batman. And if they don't do that against Florida, Florida's going to beat them. And another big factor, I talked about this in the last episode, you got to contain Kerry Blackshear down low. Bryce Golden and Bryce Enzi. They really have to, it can't be just one guy. It has to be the both of them stepping up as a unit down low to stop Blackshear, who's a legitimate All-American candidate down low. And for that reason, I just don't think Butler's going to win this game. I think Florida is going to come into Hinkle and shock the dogs. I really, really believe that. Trust me, I mean, my heart wants Butler to win because they've been a feel-good story in college hoops considering they were 8th in the preseason poll in the Big East. But I think Florida's just too talented, too good to lose this game at Hinkle Fieldhouse. That's just the way I see it. And then another big game at noon, and this is over on Fox Sports 1, first game of the year for St. John's at Madison Square Garden, 
part of the Big East Big 12 battle against West Virginia, who comes in with an unbeaten record. They're 7-0, and they have a well-balanced scoring attack. I mean, their leading scorer is Jermaine Haley. He's only averaging about a dozen points a game, but he's shooting 68% for the field, which is actually 10% better than what he's shooting from the free throw line. St. John's, they're coming off kind of a sloppy win in their last game. They only beat St. Peter's by 10 at Carneseca Tuesday night. And you don't want to be playing that kind of sloppy basketball when you play against a team like West Virginia that's strong defensively. Bob Huggins is still a tremendous coach. Hall of Fame caliber, without a doubt. And this matchup, according to the BPI, favors St. John's. It's about a 53-47 split. And talking about Tuesday night's win, again, it was only a 10-point win. It was 79-69. to LJ Figueroa led the way with 19 points and 6 rebounds. And he also had two other guys in double figures. Heron finally came to play with 17 points. Uh, and then Julian Champagny, 14 points. And every player off St. John's bench, which was five guys, each scored... And they combined to score 24 points. That's pretty solid coming off the bench. 55 points from the starters. 24 from the bench. It's a pretty solid split. And the bench is going to have to make key contributions if they want to beat West Virginia. I think West Virginia, considering the rest that they've had, they haven't played since Sunday. It's so tough to pick. But I think at the end of the day, I just think St. John's, that duo of Heron and Figueroa, if they step up and play the way they're supposed to, then they're going to win this game. And those two together are so dynamic, and I I just got to give it to St. John's. And it's going to be real tight. And I think the X factor in this is because they always tend to elevate their game whenever they're playing in the Garden. And considering this is the home debut at the Garden for this team, first time Mike Anderson gets to coach there, you got two brands of tough basketball. I mean, they're obviously both tough basketball teams. Just the difference in the way they play that tough basketball is completely different. So... It's going to be a low-scoring game. That I can tell you much. And I'm going to give the slight edge to St. John's. I think they're going to get that win that they desperately need. A quote-unquote signature win. And keep in mind, West Virginia hasn't really played anyone that tough. I mean, Rhode Island is okay. Not great. And the other wins that they've had, they've beaten Akron, Pitt, Northern Colorado, Boston U, Northern Iowa, Wichita State. Like, none of those names really jump off the page at you. St. John's probably doesn't do the same, but still, this is West Virginia playing on the road, Madison Square Garden. St. John's knows how to handle those bright lights. I don't know if West Virginia does. And then the other games, somewhat underwhelming. Nebraska's at Creighton in an in-state rivalry. And leading scorer going into this game for Nebraska, a familiar name to Big East fans. Hanif Cheatham, the former Marquette guard, is averaging a dozen points for them 
for Fred Hoiberg and company. However, the Cornhuskers are 4-4 four and four out of the gates. And their four losses, they lost by 19 to UC Riverside. Lost in double overtime to Southern Utah. Again, both of those were at home. And they also lost against George Mason down in the Cayman Islands and then at Georgia Tech Wednesday night. I got to give the edge to Creighton here, no doubt. I know they didn't look so great against Oral Roberts earlier in the week. But I just think they're too loaded offensively to lose this game against Nebraska. So let's move on to a couple inner city rivalry games. Three Eastern on ESPN2. Uh, by the way, speaking of ESPN2, Providence, Rhode Island is going to be on ESPN2 tonight at 7. So be on the lookout for that. 3 o'clock ESPN2 Saturday. Nova at St. Joe's. Another Big 5 game. And Nova's a huge favorite. And for St. Joe's, they're really a one-trick pony. And that pony is Ryan Daly. 20 points a game. 8 rebounds. Nearly 5 assists. He really does everything for the St. Joe's team. And the game plan's simple. Limit him. And you're going to win the game. And not only win, but just destroy St. Joe's. They had a tough time against Penn. But I think they learned a lot from that. Penn is a hell of a lot better than St. Joe's. And I think Villanova is going to come into that game with a sense of purpose. And I think they're going to win big. I'm talking... They won by 11 against Penn. I say they win by double that. I'm saying like a 22-point blowout. And St. Joe's is going to get into that in garbage time. And I'm being generous with that. Another inner-city rivalry game. The Crosstown Shootout, sponsored by Skyline Chili. Cincinnati, Xavier, Cintas Center. Musketeers, 8-1. and one. Bearcats at 6-2. and two. And you got a lot of star power here. Jerron Cumberland against Najee Marshall. That is a great, great matchup. And got a good matchup on the glass too, an underrated one that I'm looking at, Trey Scott against Tyreek Jones. That is going to be an intense battle on the glass because between them, they average around 19.5 rebounds per game. Xavier looked pretty sharp in their win Wednesday night, pulled away in the second half to beat Green Bay by 13 points. Again, the big thing with Xavier is they got to stop playing down to the level of their competition. Yes, they're winning these games, but they should be winning by a hell of a lot more. Najee Marshall finally got it going. 24 points, 8 of 12 from the field. Tyreek Jones grabbed 14 rebounds. And he looks extremely tough on the glass. He has, he has really made a strong impact at the center position with the Musketeers. Considering last year he played the power forward position, make room for Zach Hankins to play center. And I'll tell you, this game is going to be intense, like it is every year between these two ball clubs. And Xavier's trying to get payback from last year. And something to keep in mind, the home team has won each of the last four meetings. Xavier's won at Cintas in 2015 and 2017. Cincinnati won on their home court in 2016 and 2018. I think that trend continues. Xavier's going to win. It's going to be a close game. It's going to be very intense. But I'm going to give the edge to Xavier by, I'll say it'll be a seven-point victory. Actually, you know what? I'll bring it down to five. I think Xavier will ice the game with a couple free throws late to make it a a five-point victory for the Muskies. And that's at five o'clock on FS1. 
really good game out there. And then a couple late ones is this one part of the Big East Big 12 battle and also part of part of the finishing of a home and home series between these two teams, Marquette at Kansas State in the Little Apple. And I think Marquette's going to win this game. Now, I know they didn't end the Orlando Invitational the right way, but again, Maryland is just that damn good. I didn't think Marquette was going to win anyway. But and you got to credit Maryland also for having that game plan to shut down Marcus Howard after he got, went off for 91 points in the first two games of that tournament against Davidson and USC. Now he's averaging 26 points a game going into this game, and I think he's going to bounce back with a huge performance at Kansas State. He had one in their game in Milwaukee against the Cats last year, and I think it's going to be more of the same again this year. I know Xavier Sneed's a great player, led the way for the Wildcats when they made the Elite Eight a couple years ago, but... Again, I think Marquette's just too much. Marcus Howard is too much. I give the edge to Marquette. They're going to win this game. Coming off a real... Again, Marcus Howard didn't play, actually, Wednesday night against Jacksonville. Marquette's still solidly won the game by 19 points. Sakari Adam led the way with 19 points, and they were up big at the half. It was 46-23. to The Golden Eagles were doubling up the Dolphins. How about Jamal came with 12 rebounds, though, and he had a sensational dunk in the second half of that. The only other Marquette player in double figures was Theo John with 11, but every player that played scored at least three points. And the lowest was Samir Torrance, Syracuse guy, by the way, uh, from the Syracuse area. He scored three points, and that was on a three-pointer, his only shot taken. He also had four assists off the bench. Brendan Bailey had six. He struggled from the field. Kobe McEwen had seven. He also struggled. Same with Greg Elliott, who started in place of Marcus Howard. Ed Morrow contributed big with six points off the bench. And then Kane and Jace Johnson each had eight. Overall, even though they got outscored in the second half, a real solid effort from the Golden Eagles. I think they're going to carry that over into Saturday night and win a big one in Manhattan, Kansas. And then meanwhile, Georgetown, they got a 9-30 game Saturday night at SMU, who's undefeated, but SMU hasn't really played anybody. Georgetown just went into Stillwater on Wednesday night and beat the previously unbeaten Oklahoma State Cowboys, led by a huge night from Mac McClung. 33 points for the super sophomore, and as far as I'm concerned, now that Akinjo and LeBlanc are gone, and the details of it are just not good. Now, I know Akinjo didn't have anything to do with the scarring reports, but LeBlanc did. And assault, battery, making threats, those are really, really bad. You know, credit Georgetown for making the right move to get them get him off the team. But, again, Georgetown's in a tight spot. And they were in a tight spot at Oklahoma State. I didn't think they were going to win. I thought they were going to get blown out. But instead, Georgetown came in there and Mac Daddy took over. His 33-point outing made the difference in that game. And Omer Yurtseven, also another solid game from him, posted another double-double. Now you got to find a way to carry that over into Saturday night in Dallas against SMU. Again, SMU hasn't really beaten anybody, though. 
They've beaten Jacksonville State, New Orleans, Jackson State. They won at Evansville. And keep in mind, Evansville beat Kentucky, but Evansville has fallen off since that win. They also won at UNLV. They beat Hartford at home, and they also beat Abilene Christian in Northwestern State. Not a great schedule if you're SMU. Let's see what they do against a real team like Georgetown. Now, I know Georgetown isn't full strength now that they've lost to Kenjo on the block, but Georgetown still has a shot to win this game. However, I just think they can't ride the emotional high of that victory for that long. I think they're going to have a crash and a hangover from this game. And I think SMU is going to win. But it's going to be a lot closer than people think. I got SMU by a three-pointer. That's it. So Sunday, only a couple games. Let me just talk about DePaul, though. DePaul's the real deal, people. Then they absolutely should be ranked next week if they beat Buffalo. There's no reason why that shouldn't happen. Look at who they've beaten. They won at Iowa. They won at Boston College. They won at Minnesota. And they won against a good Texas Tech team in overtime. And it looked like they weren't going to win it and pull it out. But they made the plays late to win that game. And how about the play execution off of a missed free throw by David Moretti? And keep in mind, this guy had missed a free throw in over eight months. Last time he missed one, it was the second round of the tournament against Buffalo, March 24th, 2019. That was the last time he missed a free throw. Makes the first free throw in a one-and-one. Rims in and out on the second one, and DePaul comes down the court, and they run. It seemed like they drew this up. It was a perfectly run play. Jalen Coleman lands wide open for a three on the left wing, and Jalen Butts set a perfect screen to get him wide open. And he had ice in his veins, baby. Knocked down a huge three to tie the game and send into OT. And then in overtime, he continued to step up. He was just simply incredible in the final couple minutes of regulation and into overtime. This guy is cold-blooded, Jalen Coleman lands. I mean, he didn't make it to the University of Illinois for no reason. I mean, he's really, really good. And even though he's not the leading scorer, he is their big shot maker. There is absolutely no denying that. However, you know who my star of the night was? Charlie Moore. Now, I know he his box score didn't look great. He only scored six points, I believe. And it was six. He went 2 of 15 from the field, 0 of 4 from 3, but he did grab 5 rebounds and dished out 10 assists. And I got to also credit the bigs too. Jalen Butts and Paul Reed combined for 35 points and 14 rebounds and shot 14 of 23 from the field. And then Jalen Coleman lands at the bulk of his scoring again in the final minutes of regulation and overtime. He finished with 18 points, 4 of 10 from behind the arc, 6 of 14 for the game, but Charlie Moore really stood out to me, and the reason why I say that, the hustle plays that he made. If you can't score the ball, you've got to make up for it in other ways. And he's got that killer mentality that that was what he needed to do in order to give DePaul the edge against 
Texas Tech. Played 43 minutes in that game. He, I guarantee you, he's probably tired as hell. But he still hustled his ass off after he had been stripped. Should have been a foul, by the way. Thought there was a little bit of contact. But he hustled all the way down the court to stop Texas Tech from getting a breakout. Got the ball back and drew a foul and got the two free throws that put the game on ice and ended it. That's what is the difference between winning and losing. And Charlie Moore personifies a winner, in my opinion. He brings a winning mentality to DePaul. And that's rubbed off on everybody else now. Look at them now. They're 9-0, could be 10-0 if and when they beat Buffalo on Sunday. It's going to be a late afternoon game in Chicago, 5 Eastern, 4 Central time. And then the big game Sunday is going to be another Big East Big 12 battle, 9 Eastern on the deuce, Seton Hall at Iowa State. And the BPI, I don't know why, but they are heavily favoring Iowa State at Hilton Coliseum. Is is the home court advantage there really that much of a difference? I, I According to this, it must be. I just don't believe it. Iowa State's 5-3, and three, but they're a 72% favorite, according to the BPI. And these two teams just played... Exactly a week ago. It'll be nine days between matchups. And the second consecutive game between these two teams. In that game in the Bahamas, Miles Powell starred, and he was great. 24 points, just under 50% from the field. And then Mamu stepped up big. He was he shot 70%, 7 of 10, 3 of 4 from behind the arc, 18 points, 6 rebounds. Romaro Gill stepped up and put some points on the board. 7 points to go with 5 rebounds. And Miles Kale, after being called out by Kevin Willer, stepped up with a team-high 12 rebounds to go along with 8 points. And Quincy McKnight was also really good too. He was 5 of 6 from the field and scored a dozen. I think it's going to be a real, real close game at Hilton Coliseum. And I know everybody talks about Hilton Magic. But I think Seton Hall's got that kind of mentality, that killer mentality, to go on the road and pick up a big win, which would go down probably as another quad one win. And that's going to help their resume big time. But I'll tell you what, it is going to go down to the wire, but it's going to be up to the Veteran leadership of Seton Hall. Miles Powell and Quincy McKnight as your seniors along with Romaro Gill. Got to make sure your juniors step up too. Mamu, Kale. Honestly, top to bottom, everybody's got to step up. Tyree Samuels looked great over his last few games. He cannot go into this game flustered. I know Hill and Coliseum is such a tough place to play in, but as the lone freshman on that roster, you cannot come into that game and essentially and part of my French here shit the bed you you just can't you just beat this team a week ago gotta find a way to do it again and they had opportunities to win bigger games against Michigan State at home which they lost late And they had that huge lead against Oregon in the first round of the Battle for Atlantis. They blew that one too. It was a 19-point lead that they let slip out of their hands. Now you need to get another big road win. 
Got one at St. Louis. Got to have that same killer instinct as you did in that game. Now, I know Iowa State's a hell of a lot better than St. Louis, but you got to have that same approach if you want to be able to win on the road in high-leverage games. And if you think that's tough, just wait until the hostile environment. they got to enter a week from tomorrow when they go to Rutgers for the Garden State Harbor Classic. Especially if Seton Hall wins at Iowa State and possibly moves up in the rankings. In a game like this, having right now the current front runner amongst a lot of people for National Player of the Year, that's going to make a huge difference. And Miles Powell is going to make the difference. He lives for games like these. He's averaging 23.4 points a game. He just came off the battle for Atlantis where he set a new scoring record across three games with 74 points. I, I know he's trying to make a statement at Hilton Coliseum. And he silenced the St. Louis fans. And trust me, I believe that must have felt pretty satisfying. But to s- silence even more fans and fans that are a lot more animated and rowdy than St. Louis, that'll be even more satisfying. I think that's what Miles Powell's craving in that kind of game. And in the end, I give the edge to Seton Hall. They're going to win a very, very close game. But even more so, they're going to have to make sure they contain Tyrese Halliburton. This is a guy who does everything for this Iowa State team. And they got to make sure they keep him in check. He had 19 points in their last meeting. Got to make sure they keep him in check in this one as well. And that's going to be up to Quincy McKnight. Everyone knows he's their lock, Seton Hall's lockdown guy on defense to guard the best perimeter player on the opposite side. He's going to be tasked with doing that again now that he's fully healthy after he had some cramps against Oregon and Southern Miss. Expect him to be fully healthy nine days of rest since the last game. And I think he's going to have that killer instinct on defense and a mission to shut down Tyrese Halliburton, daring Iowa State to beat them with somebody else. And that's going to make the difference. And I give Seton Hall the edge for that very reason. So that is your weekend preview along with a brief weekend review from the midweek action. So no icebreaker for this episode. I don't want to do it every episode. I think once a week is more than fair enough. So that's going to wrap it up for this edition of the Igloo. And thanks for tuning in to this special Sign Mafia five-year anniversary reunion special. Enjoy the games this weekend. It's a really good slate with a lot of good games, in-state, inner-city rivalries. So you got a loaded slate for the next few days. Enjoy them all and tune into a brand new episode of the Igloo on Monday, which is going to feature DePaul alum Mike Henry, who is now in the Oklahoma City Blue. We're going to talk about a lot, his professional career, as well as the hype around his alma mater as they continue to rise up in the national polls. Could potentially be a top 25 team come Monday, and we're going to cover that as well. So you don't want to miss that one on Monday. So until then, this is Timmy Ice signing off from the Igloo. Thanks for tuning in, and I'll see you on Monday.